Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello. Have the world's first genetically modified babies been born? This is so, so unexpected that someone would do this that we haven't even decided how to do it correctly. How the humble semiconductor has become a 21st century battleground. America's never really lost sight of this idea that its military might depends to some extent on its technological advantages in lots of areas, including in chips. And we speak to an entrepreneur, scientist and investor, Elad Gill. There's quite a few companies that have failed along the way, either because they were crushed by competition or they just mis-executed. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio. But first, in a video posted on Sunday, a Chinese scientist, He Jiangku, announced the birth of twin girls whose DNA he claims has been edited to prevent HIV infection. Two beautiful little Chinese girls named Lulu and Lala came crying into the world as healthy as any other babies a few weeks ago. Grace started her pregnancy by regular IVF, with one difference. Right after we sent her husband's sperm into her egg, we also sent in a little bit of protein and instruction for a gene surgery. If his claim is correct, then he has created the world's first genetically modified babies, or GMBs. To discuss this development, I'm joined by Natasha Loder, The Economist Health Policy Editor. Hello, Natasha. Hello, Ken. So first, what do we know has happened and how can we verify it? So at the moment, we only know what he has told us. That is that he's created twin baby girls that have been edited to modify a particular gene in their body, which allows HIV uh, infections. And in doing so, he's conveyed resistance to HIV infection in one of these babies. That's what he's told us. It should be pretty straightforward to verify it. How can we do so? Well, if we had access to the children themselves and the parents, then we could do that. But he is very insistent, and I'm sure he's correct in this, that the parents wish to remain anonymous. The father of the two babies is HIV positive, which is a, a stigma in China. And essentially, despite the interest, there's, there's obviously huge public interest in these, these children. Ultimately, they are two baby girls. And we have no right as a society to demand that they undergo any kind of form of testing. They have the rights that any normal children. Lay out the positive um case for why this technology is so phenomenal, but then explain why you're so worried. 
So gene editing is a phenomenal technology. And at the moment, all around the world, people are pursuing editing as a way of tackling some really horrendous diseases like cystic fibrosis and muscular dystrophy, all sorts of horrible afflictions, Huntingdon's. But the, the strategy there is to edit the adult cells, the affected, the diseased cells of adults. There is interest also scientifically in the concept of gene editing for tinkering with embryos. And you do have to ask the question of why would you do this? And many people feel that there's absolutely no reason to genetically edit embryos. I'm more open to the idea that there will be uses for which it will be found. And so one of the arguments goes that, well, do you know, if somebody with cystic fibrosis wants to have children or somebody with Huntington's, they can do something called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. In other words, they can create a whole bunch of embryos and they can test which ones uh, are affected and only choose to have the unaffected embryos implanted. And that's absolutely true and correct. But as some scientists point out, if you have more than one uh, serious genetic affliction, uh, something that's unlikely but possible, it may be that you just can't create enough embryos so that probabilistically you have a normal one. And so that's one of the case uses that people can conceive of for germline editing. But what we've always said at The Economist, although we're very positive about the technology, is that using it in uh, germline editing or in, in embryo editing is years, if not decades away, just simply because we need to do a lot of basic science and understand a lot of basic science and really thoroughly explore the implications. The other concern is the question of what you're losing by changing this gene. And so certainly you do gain this resistance to the HIV virus, which is of dubious benefit if you're never going to come across this virus. And the standard of care is very good, of course. But, you know, you've got to ask yourself, well, why isn't that gene more prevalent in human societies already? And it may be that having that gene confers some kind of risk. So what could he have done differently to have done it above board? if he was going to do it at all? I think there's absolutely no way this year, next year, or in any of the next three or four years, he could have conceivably done it in a way that would have been acceptable, simply because we do not have the regulatory framework for this up and running. In fact, at the genome editing meeting this week in Hong Kong, scientists were just about to start tentatively talking about what kind of ways you might govern this technology. But I can tell you one thing for sure. It is and must be and has to be regulated as if it's a medicine or therapeutic. And the way that happens is there is a clinical pathway that is governed by medicine regulatory agencies, thorough and transparent reviews of the ethics of different experiments, and trials will be registered with the authorities thing is, is this is so, so unexpected that someone would do this, that we haven't even decided how to do it correctly. So there's no way Mr. He could have done this correctly, that because we haven't set up the systems to do that. So he went rogue? Yeah, he went rogue. Okay. So then why are you defending the rights of the family against the scientific community at the outset of our conversation, not to be able to inspect the work? Because they're human beings. And even though Mr. He may not have respected their human rights as he should have done, the rest of the world has to do. Natasha, it's always fabulous to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. 
Next up, modern semiconductors are the most complicated devices produced by humans. These tiny electronic circuits with billions of components that are put together in ultra-sophisticated factories. With sales of around $400 billion a year, the global semiconductor industry is proving to be a new battleground for the ongoing commercial conflict between America and China. To discuss this, I'm joined by Tim Cross, the technology editor. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. And Hal Hodson, a technology correspondent. Hello, Hal. Hello, Ken. So, Tim, why does this rivalry go beyond the normal competition that we see in capitalism and seem to be more substantial, a little bit like a war? Well, I think because semiconductors, chips, they're so fundamental now to everything we do. You know, uh, anything that does computing basically runs on one of these chips. And when you start to make lists of what that is, you come up with many, many, many things in the world, almost almost everything. You know, your car is a computer that has wheels. Your planes are computers with wings. Banks are just computers that move electronic money around the world. So semiconductors really are sort of one of the foundations of the global economy. There's always been a sort of national security angle to them. And Silicon Valley's first chips were used in things like the guidance systems of nuclear missiles. And America's never really lost sight of this idea that its military might depends to some extent on its technological advantages in lots of areas, including in chips. So a war suggests that if there's a winner, there's a loser as well. But often in business, that's not the case. I mean, that's true. And uh, you can't get away from the fact that the issue here is that China is investing massive amounts of money in trying to catch up. It turns out to be a very good time to do this. They're spending hundreds of billions of dollars on trying to build the fundamental components that go into an economy that can build large numbers of semiconductors, which China hasn't really had before. They make lots of phones and they put lots of things together and they actually do lots of things that are sort of fairly low level, like assembling circuit boards and chips, but they don't actually build the chips themselves. And that's what the Chinese government and lots of Chinese companies are starting to try now. Why should this be different than the wars over microchips that took place in the 1980s and 1990s between America and Japan? I think in many ways it's not. There were lots of fear statements around Japan building these chips. But I think the difference is that Japan was a democracy then and you know China isn't a democracy now. And those are the kinds of things that we worry ourselves yeah, about. Yeah, I think that's, that's the main difference is you know, Japan was being an ally of America and China has ambitions to be a sort of rival superpower. So I'm still stuck on the idea of why do I want one side or another to win? Why do I have a horse in this race? Well, I mean, unless you're the government of America or China, you maybe don't. And if you're not the government of America or China, you probably would like there to be as little nationalist pressure as possible. Because if you try and untangle these very integrated supply chains, it's probably going to mean less innovation and, and, and more costs for everyone. But we've disparaged the national security angle a bit. But I think both sides take it very seriously. So, you know, you may or may not have a horse in the race, but this is something that, that seems to be happening. So it's only a war because both sides perceive it as a war. You're right, to, in a sense. I mean, I think one thing I've been thinking about recently is like if America decided to just go hell for leather and like kill the Chinese semiconductor industry, I think it actually could. Well, we had the perfect example, didn't we? So when the Americans banned the export of you know, chips and IP to ZTE, which is a pretty big company, you know, it sells, it makes mobile phones, it makes telecoms equipment, it sells more around the world, it has revenue, I think around $15 billion. When they said, you know, no more American IP, this massive company basically went bankrupt overnight. And the only reason it still exists is because Donald Trump said, oh, OK, as a personal favor to Xi Jinping, I'll, I'll undo all this. But I think if you're China, it's very uncomfortable to think that some of your biggest companies can just literally be switched off at the stroke of a pen. I think the other thing that's different since the 1980s is that the chip industry is changing as well. So it used to ping along quite reliably with Moore's law, where you know every two years you could cram twice as much stuff into an integrated circuit. 
And people have been saying for years and years and years and years that Moore's law can't go on forever, and it can't, and it does now seem to be stopping, right? So the number of people who are doing the really cutting-edge manufacturing has fallen from dozens 10 years ago. There are five left now, and the cost of, of constantly shrinking these things is, is rising. And if you talk to chip designers, they'll say, we don't know exactly when the end is, but it's, it's coming into sight now. And that's kind of changing the way the whole industry works. So in a way, there almost hasn't been that much innovation on the design side for a long time because you had this manufacturing ratchet that kept ticking and meant that your chips just got better and better and better. There was no point trying to optimize them for specific applications or even you know, investigating anything other than, than silicon. And now that Moore's Law is coming to an end, you've got this future where things are going to be much more uncertain. You'll need sort of clever designs for your chips. You'll need to look at different ways to do computing. You know, it's, it's a sort of thousand flowers blooming scenario. And, and the big advantage that might offer is that a lot of this territory for now is, is sort of relatively unclaimed. You don't have these big incumbents like, you know, Intel and TSMC squatting there who you have to catch up with if you want to be competitive. So my final question is, so what does peace look like? Peace in this ecosystem I mean, I think it looks like a sort of wary tension between, and it is America and China. And in a way, the more that the supply chain can remain as entangled as it is, as Tim has described, which is is a good thing for a number of reasons, the more it can remain entangled, the more peace can sort of continue. You could imagine a tipping point where as things become less tangled, both sort of blocks are incentivized to fall further apart and further apart because the old cooperation isn't working. So peace looks like not getting to that tipping point, I think. Hal, thank you very much. Sure thing. Tim, thank you. Thanks, Ken. Finally, I'm joined by Elad Gill. Elad is a scientist, entrepreneur, executive, and investor or advisor to many companies. Some of them include Airbnb, Pinterest, Square, and Stripe. He's also now an author. His latest book is The High Growth Handbook, Scaling Startups from 10 to 10,000 People. And he joins me now. Elad, welcome to Babbage. Now, as you know, the podcast is a science and technology podcast, and you're a scientist and you work with technology companies. My first question is, what do you look for? What are some of the commonalities when you're meeting with a technology-focused entrepreneur that makes you think that this person is a good bet versus a person who you look at and think, smart guy, but I'm not going to invest? You know, it's really interesting. In Silicon Valley, a lot of early-stage investors really focus on the founders or the team as the single most important thing that's likely to determine the success of the company. I take a bit of a different view and that I actually think that the market that the team is in matters a lot more. And Andy Rackleff, one of the founders of Benchmark Capital, which is the firm that funded Uber and Snap and other companies, he came up with this sort of pithy statement, which some people call Rackleff's Law, which is basically summarized as, if you have a great team and a terrible market, the market wins. If you have a terrible team and a great market, the market wins. In other words, the company does well despite itself having a bad team. And if you have a great team in a great market, something magical happens. And that's when you end up with a company like a Google or Facebook or something that's truly outsized in terms of an outcome. I think one of the key points, though, is his very first statement that if you have a great team in a terrible market, the market wins, which means no matter how good the team is, if they build something in a market that's just a bad market, an example of that would be education technology, where there's no buyer, then the, the team is very likely to fail. And so often the market, in the early days at least, is going to matter more than the team. And then once things start to mature and work and grow, then the team really matters and kicks in. A question that I have reading the book is, what about the personal psychology of the founders between realism and confidence versus overconfidence? 
Mm, yeah, it's an interesting question. I think that most founders have to kind of fool themselves into doing a startup or be overly optimistic relative to what society thinks in order to build something successful. And part of the reason is that if a startup idea is obvious and it's clear to everyone that it should work, then it's already going to be very crowded and lots of people are going to be working on it. So almost definitionally, the most successful technology startups have to be a little bit contrarian or a little bit against the grain in terms of what people think is possible or likely to happen. And that means that you need founders who are either are very strong first principles thinkers who can sort of see through the fog and understand or see things that other people don't see, or they need to be optimistic in terms of the likelihood of their own success. When you look at commonalities of people in high-growth companies at the early stage who are able to grow at the company and take on more responsibility as business people managing a technology company versus those that can't cross that chasm, what do you think are the commonalities for the features of the people who can make the cross and those who can't? You know, I've funded a number of the sort of breakout companies of this current era. So Airbnb, Stripe, Coinbase, Instacart. And if I ask, uh, what do great founders such as they encapsulate, it really comes down to a few things. Number one is they seek feedback and input broadly around areas that they don't understand. So, for example, Brian Chesky, uh, the CEO of Airbnb, or Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, when they're hiring, for example, a chief financial officer, they'll go and they'll ask three of the best chief financial officers in the world, what's the role, what should they look for in it? And how should they hire for it? And so they're really focused on learning, first and foremost. Secondly, they realize that they have to be managing and developing themselves as leaders and managers. And that means that they not only seek out counsel, but they also try to surround themselves and their team with some of the best people that can take on those functions. Ultimately, startups are very much a team sport versus an individual sport. And it's really about rounding out the set of people that you're working with on an ongoing basis. And then lastly, they're very introspective. They're willing to ask themselves questions and they're willing to really ponder what they're good at and bad at and ask where can they improve and frankly, where can't they improve? And therefore, how should they be navigating their development as a leader? Who out there, maybe who's somewhat forgotten, blew it? What company had great potential but just never made it across the Rubicon? You know, there's quite a few companies that have failed along the way, either because they were crushed by competition or they just misexecuted. MySpace is a great example where they really were the dominant social network. They were reaching hundreds of millions of people, and many people actually thought it was game over, and they kind of blew up. They sold themselves early. They ran a bunch of advertising on their site instead of really focusing on feature iteration. And so that would be a great example of a company that everybody thought would be the dominant social network and then eventually just went to zero while Facebook ended up subsuming it. So MySpace would be a good example. Ilad, thank you. Now, we have several copies of Ilad's book that we're giving away to listeners. All you need to do is respond to the question, and we have to like your answer. And you have to email us at radio at economist.com. The question is this. What is the company whose technology was ready, but for whatever reason in terms of product market fit, we don't know about the company because they didn't get the rest right. Tell us what the company is and the industry and the product, and if we like the answer, we'll send you a copy of the book. 
And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. I'm Kenneth Kukier in London. This is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.